Talmud and Midrash are interesting. They're interesting in many levels. One of the areas, things that makes them interesting to me is that they were the rabbi's way of storytelling to always make a point. I mean, the point of telling the story is some ethical principle or to, to explain some value that they wanted to get across that they thought was best expressed in kind of in a story. Or they would, they would have a statement that one of the rabbis would make in the Talmud. Like there's one of the statements was even the person, let me back up. They believed in miracles, right? We have, we talk about miracles all the time. <clears throat> Every Hanukkah we say we light candles, we spin a dreidel, Neskadol Hayasham, or Po, if you here, if you're living in Israel, a great miracle happened. We talk about miracles. We're about to have Passover. Miracles, right? We talk about the miracle of the liberation, the miracle of the splitting of the sea, the miracle of wandering for 40 years in the desert and having manna, having food given every day. And in the later rabbinic writings in the Talmud and wherever, the rabbis also say not only that, but, you know, as actually it says from the Torah, their clothes didn't wear out, their shoes didn't wear out, 40 years of no shopping. That was like their punishment. 40 years of no shopping, which is actually funny because the man whose funeral I did today was um, uh, colorblind from birth. And one of his favorite things to do was go clothes shopping. But he was colorblind. So um, so the girls, you know, four daughters, when I was talking to them about their father, they said, yeah, you know, dad was colorblind, but he loved to go shopping and whatever, but he didn't really know what he was buying all the time because he was colorblind. Everything was sort of black and white for dad. He said, so if mom was pissed at him, she would put out two non-matching socks. He was a lawyer who went to court. And they said, if he went to court with two socks that weren't matching, the judge would say, did you have a fight with your wife today? <laughs> Modern Talmud. Anyway, so the rabbis talk about miracles because we're, you know, the Torah is filled with miracles after all. You know, and, and every religious tradition talks about miracles. I'm always talking about miracles. My version is just the everyday miracles of life, like you wake up. That's the first miracle of the day, you know, and you can do this and pick something up and your fingers work and your heart's beating and, and those, that's the next miracle, you know, and that you can function in the world and that you have relationships with people and, and, and that the, even though it was freezing and raining and there was a tornado or something in Montebello or whatever, hurricanes in Montebello, basically that you have faith that it's going to go away and we're going to be okay. That's sort of miraculous too. And we had a drought and now we don't have a drought and we'll have a drought again in 10 minutes. But, you know, things like that. There's the, the miracles of nature and the miracles of every day. So in the Talmud, the rabbis made a statement. One of their statements that I loved was, even the person for whom a miracle is performed is unaware of the miracle. This is like they were having a conversation, and one of the rabbis in the Talmud said, you know what, yes, there are miracles, but even the person for whom a miracle takes place is unaware of the miracle. And you're wondering, well, what does that mean? So then he said, I'll give you an example. It's like the story of the two men who set out on a trading exposition, but one man got sick on the day they were supposed to travel and he had to stay home. So he cursed God for making him sick. 
and forcing him that sickness then to miss this financial opportunity because it was a business trip. Then, of course, as these stories go, he heard that his friend's ship got caught in a hurricane and sank. So then he, of course, says, thank God I got sick. Because without, you know, really ascribing to sickness to God when it was in his favor, he complained to God, now it's in his favor, and now he says, oh, thank you, God, like as if. And then this rabbi in the Talmud who said, even the person for whom a miracle is performed is unaware of the miracle, they always quote some text in the Bible. So he quotes Psalm 72, where it says, quote, blessed is... Adonai, God of Israel, who alone creates miracles. So that whole little story I told you was really this rabbi in the Talmud's way of trying to explain that psalm phrase. Why does it say, blessed is God, Adonai, God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things? Because miracles happen to us and we don't even know. So that guy who got sick and therefore didn't drown in the ship that was wrecked, if he hadn't heard about it, he would never have known that the miracle took place, quote, right? So I think of this, because this is the way my brain works, every time, like, I start out later than I want to start out to go somewhere in my car, my brain says, well, see, it's okay, because who knew who knows? Maybe if I'd actually still got there on time, started on time, I would have ended up in a car accident. And how many times in all of our lives do we recognize something just missed us, right? We just looked up in time. Somebody just made a turn, whatever. All of us have this experience of there but for the grace of God, go I. Something could have happened. Because things happen every day. What, 30,000 people die in car accidents, I think, in America every year. Last time I looked, something like that. So, this is one of the ways, this is one of the funny ways that human minds work. More people are afraid of flying than of getting in a car. And who dies in planes? Like, almost zero people die in a plane. With millions every year of people in airplanes and people die every day in cars, but everybody just jumps in a car and goes like as if it's nothing and gets anxious about getting on an airplane. That's lots of reasons, but okay. So, is, is yes. A question. Is, is there a, I know there are Jewish blessings for just about everything. Yes. Is there a blessing for that example you just gave? We avoided an accident. Yes. Away? Yes. It, there is, it's like a Misha Berach kind of blessing. You say, Misha Berach, you thank God for rescuing me. In fact, in fact, uh, uh, but it's not a Baruch It's not exactly that. It's not exactly that. Although there is a blessing. If my brain were working, I would tell you, but there is a blessing that, uh, blessed is God who, uh, who creates miracles. Miracles or creates all things. For sure. Uh, but Yotzer who creates everything, but there's a blessing who, uh, who creates Nisim, who Niflaot, miracles and wonders. And you can say that traditionally every time something miraculous happens, like you're, you just missed having an accident or something like that. 
Um, or you can say it when you're healed, even though we have a rofei cholim, we thank God who heals the sick. You can say that blessing about, because what's the, you know, the miracle of being healed always seems like a miracle too. If when I cut myself and I, and my body heals itself, that's miraculous. I had a Mohs procedure a couple, two weeks ago on my face. You know, I had some cancer on my face and they cut my face open and did whatever they did and took, put a bandage on for a week. And then last, a week later, they took the bandage off and the doctor, the, the, uh, <clears throat> who did the procedure looked at my face and said, wow, you heal well. You're not even going to have a scar. Can't even tell. I mean, literally, she had like two layers of stitches in my face. You can't even tell. I think that's miraculous. I didn't do it. I mean, I guess I did it, but I didn't do it by going, okay, heal, 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 right? You just, it's the miracle of life that we are able to heal like that. A question about the story. You gave the example, obviously, if one just avoids an accident, one knows that miracle or whatever you want to call it has happened. But is that story about that, or is that story about things that happen that we don't know are miracles and we only realize later, like... For me, that's that story. It was, yeah, it was really yes. horrible when I got divorced, but it was only later that I realized it was the best thing that ever happened. Right. That, to me, is the story of life, of everybody's life. Everybody's life story is we have twenty twenty hindsight. Everybody's story is that... They lost their job or they got divorced or whatever happened to them. And not everybody, but most people's story is because of that, they ended up here. Because of that, they ended up in that relationship. Or because of that, they ended up in a, and I've told this a million times over the years, when I was at Temple Judea for six years in the valley and I needed to leave Temple Judea. Well, I wanted to leave Temple Judea. They didn't really ask me to leave, but I wanted to leave Temple Judea and have a congregation of my own at the time. Uh, and I needed to stay in Los Angeles because I was subsequently married and had some custody issues with Gable and Didi and Gable still had another father out there, still does. Um, so I was in the valley and I applied to become the rabbi in uh, in the valley in another congregation at Ahavat Shalom. And it seemed like it would be an obvious thing. I was right up the road. A lot of people knew me. It would be a slam dunk. And they didn't hire me. You can tell because I'm here. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't, <laughs> they didn't hire me. I was devastated. How could they not hire me? I'm, I'm a good rabbi. How could they not? They didn't hire me. Um, and I was really, I was devastated. So, uh, but because they didn't hire me there, I ended up here. Best thing ever happened to me was I ended up here. So uh, instead of Northridge, I ended up in the Palisades. Just saying. Not that there's anything wrong with Northridge, but just saying. Instead of the, but, you know, at the time it was horrible. And that's why that's that's the thing about the rabbis have the intelligence to recognize what I'm always saying which is in Deuteronomy, we have that famous statement that God says, I set before you good and evil, life and death, blessing and curse, and therefore choose life. Choose life. And and I'm always pointing out, so I'll do it again, that what it doesn't say is, I God, God isn't quoted as saying, I put before you good or evil, blessing or curse, life or death. 
It's both and. All of us have life and death. All of us have blessing and curse. Um, so the power of that phrase in the, in the Torah is recognizing that we, we get, all of us get, get everything. We get blessings and curses in our lives, but the sort of the punchline of that is that we don't always know which is which. Victoria, you raised your hand. Can I say something? Yes, Rabbi. <laughs> and of course, you married Jim and me between those appointments, so that we know made the miracle. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the other thing I want to say is, there is something, I don't know what kind of miracle this is. If you intend to, we had a project, we did a course, and Jim had, took on a project of empowering someone, and you couldn't, the rule was you could not tell them. And so he empowered his brother to create a big, um, a particular entity that would test and uh, make sure that things were running appropriately. And his mm-hmm. brother had never had any creative ideas. So Jim died. And I checked in about three months ago just to see because that organization is going strong. And I said, and did you know that Jim thought of that? <laughs> and and I was told profoundly, no, that was my idea. So I just zipped my lip. Mm. But there is something about empowering someone to do something that makes a miracle. And you don't have to take credit for it or anything. Yeah. It's like, wow, that's an incredible miracle. Anyway, thank you for letting me interrupt. <laughs> no, anytime, anytime. You know, we are all pebbles in the pond. Everything we do has an impact on other people. And one of the great challenges of life, I think, is remembering that, that what we do matters. That's why I'm always saying what we do matters, what we say matters, and who we are matters, because it's so easy to forget. And it's so easy, actually, to underestimate our own impact on other, on other people. Um, I mean, we all know the profound impact that other people have had on us, sometimes with just a word. Sometimes with just a smile, sometimes with a hug, sometimes with exactly the opposite, ignoring us, turning away, you know, not responding to a phone call or a text or a whatever, and, and how that hurts and how easily we are impacted by other human beings. And that yet we forget we are also those other human beings to everybody else and that we can have a profound and powerful positive and negative impact on other people by what we say or what we do or what we don't say and what we don't do. You know, it's like one of the, one of, one of my favorite um, statements from the Talmud along this line is there's a blessing that you're supposed to actually say around the high holidays that says, blessed is God, the knower of secrets. And from the Talmud and the rabbi said, it's like, well, they have this traditional notion that God knows what you're thinking. <laughs> God knows what's going on in everybody, with everybody, and yet holds everybody's life and is okay with everybody's life and all everybody's struggles. And this notion that you're supposed to say on high holidays, that it's a traditionally something that actually rabbis said from the pulpit, looking out at the whole congregation and realizing everybody's coming into the high holy days with their own secrets, good and bad. 
Everybody's coming into this day of self-reflection, of tshuva, of repentance, potential repentance, return, with their own long list of things I did and things I didn't do, things I should have done and things I shouldn't have done. All that we talk about over the over the the days of awe, which is why they're called days of awe, because it is an awesome task to be willing to hold up a mirror, a spiritual mirror to yourself, and to be willing to look at yourself, which is what we challenge all of us, each other, and ourselves to do every year, you know, at least once a year during that sacred season. And and then we hold up God as God is that uh, the knower of everybody's secrets. And it's kind of like this is God as parent. You know, God as parent is, I know my kids screw up sometimes, but I still love them. You know, and my door is always open. And hopefully they'll come back, you know, when after they've gone astray. That's the parent version of God in, in our theology, that God's door is always open, essentially, to us. Repentance is always possible. Healing is always possible. Um, and, and I think every religious tradition has a version of that. Then because we, because we're human beings and we're frail and we screw up and we need rituals and opportunities and customs and traditions and language to help us. You know, before there were therapists, there were priests and rabbis and shamans and whatever, right? Because everybody, we're people are the same. I mean, that's why I always still continue to wear this lovely bracelet that has, you know, symbols of all the different religions on it, and I wear it every day because I do believe that people are fundamentally the same. And different religious communities have created their own unique rituals, customs, traditions, holidays, language, literature, art, music, to respond to the same fundamental questions of life. What are we doing here? How do we make meaning and purpose out of our lives? And how do we return from going astray, which all of us do? You know, it's just, that's the human condition. So, which is why one of my, many, many years ago on high holidays, one of my sermons was the next section, this piece of Talmud that I'm going to share with you was a high holiday sermon. It was from the Shabbat, the tractate Shabbat in the Talmud, where, uh, it actually it's echoed two places in Shabbat and in Kiddushin, two different tractates where the conversations about death and life and death and afterlife take place. And the rabbis famously say that when we die, we will go before God, who is the heavenly judge, which is the whole, you know, imagery of high holidays anyway, although I should be talking about Passover since it's coming up, but high holidays, the whole imagery is, you know, God on the throne, and we we pass before God all of our deeds, good and bad, and ultimately... God says, come on in anyway. That's the good news. So the rabbis ask, of course, famously, what are the questions that God's going to ask us, which I always loved, when we die? And um, and the preface to that, there are four questions. This is the Passover connection, four questions, <laughs> even though they're not the same four questions. Four questions. But the preface to the four questions is a statement that I always loved, which is, the, the rabbis in the Talmud say, in the future, when we die, each of us must give an accounting for every pleasure we saw but didn't enjoy. We are responsible to enjoy life. 
we are going to be called to task for the food that we could have eaten that we didn't eat, for the celebrations that we could have celebrated that we didn't. Judaism is an anti-ascetic religious civilization. We are not the only on the holidays. On Yom Kippur we do this, but we do it together. We're not supposed to go off and live as ascetics and, you know, in a cave somewhere. In fact, there's a whole story about that, but I won't go there. You know, and how it was a bad thing that this rabbi lived in this cave for 12 years. You know, so we're not supposed to do that. We are supposed to fully enjoy life and and live life and have relationships and enjoy the abundance of what life has to offer. So much so that that's the first thing that we are going to be called to task when we die, according to the rabbis in the Talmud, by God is, why didn't you enjoy that? What do you think I made it for, essentially, is what God's going to say. What do you think it's there for? It wouldn't be there you couldn't enjoy it, in moderation, of course. So, and then there's the four questions. Manish Halayla Hazaz, not the question, but here's my version of translation of those questions. The first one is, were you honest in your business? Nasata be'emuna is the Hebrew for it. Were you honest? Did you have integrity in business? The rabbis were amazing, I think, that the first question of the four questions is about business and how we conducted ourselves in an area of our lives that is so important and so easy to oppress people. The Torah is filled with, filled with rules and mitzvot and laws against oppressing people by charging too much interest, by having untrue weights and measures. There's a whole section in the book of Leviticus all about how we're supposed to conduct our business with integrity. And be, and then the rabbis say it's the first thing we're held accountable for, after the pleasure thing, is did we conduct our affairs honestly? And the second question was, of course, they were rabbis who were teachers and studiers. So the second question was, did you, kavata itim la Torah, as the Hebrew, did you set aside a regular time for Torah? Like this. You all pass. You showed up. See? You'll be able to say, yes, I went to Rabbi Rubin's class anyway. So, did you set a regular time? Here's what's interesting. The, the question is, kavata itim la Torah, did you set a time for study? Meaning, there was, God isn't questioning how much you learned. God isn't questioning, wait, did you study the really hard stuff? Or did you only get by with the easy stuff? God isn't questioning what you studied. It's about the discipline and the commitment to engage in wrestling with exactly what we're doing today. It's the commitment to show up to Torah study of any kind. Because Torah, in this sense, is not literally Torah behind me in the Ark, the five books of Moses. That's small Torah. This is Torah with a capital T, which means all Jewish learning. Everything is then Torah. Uh, and which is why the, and the rabbis in the Talmud say, Talmud Torah Kaneged Kulam, that the study of Torah is equal to everything else. And by that Torah, they don't just mean this, although they do mean this also. They mean engaging in 
the ongoing intellectual, spiritual, emotional, communal wrestling with Torah. Because that's the other part of this. People historically did not, did not study alone by themselves. They didn't go to the synagogue, take the Torah scroll, sit in a room, unroll it, and read Torah. It was either in a chavruta with another person or what we do in class, in community. So fixing a time to study Torah, kivita, kav, kavata itim la Torah, did you fix a time for Torah, also meant were you engaged with the community? Because that's where you study Torah with community. So that one simple, what looked like a simple phrase from the Talmud, did you set aside a regular time for Torah study? You know, like, are you a good student? Is about much more than just being the Torah itself. It's the entire corpus of Jewish language, literature, art, history, culture, food, music that makes Jewish civilization. Did you engage with it? And did you commit yourself on a regular basis to do that? Because that meant you were a functioning fully participating part of the community. Yeah. What you're saying then is Torah becomes process. Yes. It's a, it's an ongoing process and it's not in one direction. Yes. It is a dialogue. It's a, it's a communication to dialogue. Torah is always dialogue. You know, that's why when you see those yeshiva pictures of yeshivas, there's two couples studying together. It's always dialogue because one light one little flame lights another one. That's the whole theory. Yeah. Is that why the Orthodox, because they know this question is going to be answered, is that why they study? The, the, the question whether Jill asks, is that why the Orthodox study? That's not why study is such a big thing. That's Yes, this is part of it. They see this as a command from God. The command is Talmud Torah. When they say Talmud Torah, connected Kulam, the study of Torah is more important than anything. Therefore, that's why the ultra-Orthodox, that's all they do. You know, the men anyway, that's all they do is they think they're fulfilling the mitzvah. They think they're doing what God wants them to do. You know, we get in a lot of trouble with people in the world, as you've noticed, who act always thinking that I, I know what God wants me to do. You know, we Jews have had lots and lots of very bad experiences over our thousands of years of other people going, I know what God wants me to do, and it's kill Jews. Uh, it's happening today all over the place. The biggest rise in anti-Semitism in the last quarter century, at least, right? And uh, by the way, I'm going to tell you this now, even though it's out of context, so I don't forget. Passover is coming up, and with with Passover, with Passover comes, um, you know. We talk about welcoming strangers on Passover. It's the very first thing that happens in the Seder. Let all who are hungry come and eat, we say. Today, I read that the United Nations Office of Refugees announced that for the first time in human history, according to them, there are over 100 million refugees in the world. A hundred million refugees in the world, they said that's like one out of every 77 people or something like that, whatever, I'm not good at math. A hundred million refugees in the world. It's like the world's going backwards instead of forwards in so many ways. So when we gather at our tables, you know, 
and we say, let all who are hungry come and eat, it should only be because there are a hundred million people out there who are home, have been kicked out of their homes and who are somewhere in the world wandering in temporary shelters or whatever because of all the things that are going on that we all know about in the world that you can see on the news every single day. Um, and our congregation, like many congregations, are now part of the international highest um, project of welcoming refugees, we welcoming families and from Ukraine or wherever, frankly, who need us to step up and, and, and help them. So that was number two question. Did you set a regular time for Torah? Number three is... Asakta Bapiria Berivia, which is, did you busy yourself with the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiply? That was the first mitzvah of the Torah. The very first mitzvah of the Torah is, Pruervu, Amalohad Aretz, be fruitful and multiply and fill up the earth, which we certainly have done. We got eight million, billion, I mean, people in the world now. So we've been doing that as a species. <clears throat> we have been fulfilling that mitzvah. So the rabbis <clears throat> wrestle with this question of, well, what about people who don't have any kids? Because there are lots of people, for lots of reasons, who don't have any kids. And <clears throat> they have uh, differing opinions. There are those uh, sticklers who said, no, everybody, to fulfill the mitzvah, you have to have at least two kids. <clears throat> Some say, <coughs> excuse me, you had to have two boys, because, <clears throat> of course, it was uh, traditionally very male-centered. Some say, you know, you can have a boy and a girl. But others said, no, you don't have to have any children. You have to be engaged with children. You have to be someone who is involved with, who occupied ourselves. That's, to take this literally, asakta. Did you busy yourself with the mitzvah of being fruitful and multiplying, which can be not that you are having giving birth yourself, but rather you are helping to take responsibility for the children of the world who are the result of being fruitful and multiplying in the world. Teachers and caregivers and babysitters and all of the people who occupy themselves with the needs of children who get involved with nonprofits that they create on behalf of children, like Jill, you know, women helping youth, those kind of people like that are fulfilling this mitzvah, whether they have their own children out of their own bodies or not. Um, Because, first of all, children are the most vulnerable of our society. And so if we don't have a mitzvah, if we don't have literally from the mouth of God, in, in theory, commanding us to take care of children, it's so easy for them to be abused, to be oppressed and that's that's been the human history up to very very recently how children were thought of as objects and possessions and not independent human beings and, until they became adult adults and the fourth one of these four questions god's four questions after why are we eating matzah tonight and leaning is tzipita uh, liyeshua which is an interesting Hebrew phrase. It literally means, are you looking forward to salvation? That's what it literally means. Are you actively <clears throat> looking forward to working for anticipating redemption? Now, originally what they meant by that was that someday the Messiah is going to come 
and liberate us all from whatever challenges we've been experiencing in this world, and we're all going to end up back in Jerusalem, although this isn't a good season to be in Jerusalem um, either, and we're all going to be there protesting, I guess, is what we're going to be doing and joining the other half a million who are protesting this week. Um, but the, what the, how the rabbis continue to interpret this, Tzipita Yeshua, is in a much broader sense. Do you have faith in the future? Is really what they're saying, ultimately. Do you have hope? Do you have faith in the future? And it's kind of like, I don't know about all of you, but I was, several times I've been in situations where people have asked, uh, could I name the single most uh, powerful book I ever read other than the Torah? Which, I'm a rabbi, I should say the Torah is the most powerful book I ever read. But people have asked in different settings, what's the most powerful book or life-changing book? Did you ever read a life-changing book? Um, and you know, personally, the book that always comes up is Viktor Frankl's, for me, Viktor Frankl's book, In Search of Meaning. Um, and it's, I thought of that book when I was reading, once again, this fourth question, do you have hope for the future? I thought about Frankl because, as you know, Frankl's great <clears throat> reminder to all of us out of his experiences in Auschwitz, his great uh, revelation, wasn't his alone, but was that they can take everything from me, my freedom, anything physical, but I, but my own mind to make my own choices about how I experience and how I choose to experience whatever's going on in the world and the meaning that I give it. Uh, I'm always the one who's saying, and I'll, I'll say it again, that our, as human beings, our superpower, I believe our superpower is exactly that, that we are, above all else, meaning makers. That's our superpower. That we take random events, any events, things, objects, and we take our Harry Potter magic wand and we wave it over it. We say, boom, zap, that's what it means. It means whatever we say it means, right? And the example I always use is if you're here and in the sanctuary on a Friday night and we're about to chant Kiddush from this sacred Kiddush cup, it's a beautiful silver Kiddush cup. But if you're, and it's a sacred object, but if you're going to Jewish summer camp and you're sitting under the tree on Shabbat with all the other kids, and they take a Dixie cup and they put some grape juice in it and they give it to you and everybody says, hold up your cup and go, Baruch Atah and suddenly that Dixie cup is a Kiddush cup and becomes a sacred object. And it's just a paper, whatever, plastic Dixie cup. Because we human beings say, zap, it's a sacred object. And we do that with everything in our lives all the people in our lives, all the experiences we have in our lives, we look at them sometimes in the in the moment, always after the fact, look back and decide what did that mean to me. So we were earlier, blessings and curses, because the great punchline that I never got to earlier was, God gives us, life gives us blessings and curses, and we don't always know which is which. That's the punchline. We don't always know which is which until we say, ah, oh, it looked like a, ble- a curse, but it really it's a blessing. We say it. Or the opposite, looked like a blessing, but it really was a curse. Boy, did I think that girl was going to be the one for me. And it turned out, not so much. Right? 
Looked like that guy was the one for me. Turned out not so much. I thought that job was, that was going to be the job for me. Turned out not so much. You know, that's life. We don't always know which is which. But which is which depends on us and how we hold it, how we experience it, what we choose to say about it, the meaning that we give it. Yeah. So how did Judaism become so optimistic? I mean, you're talking about an extremely optimistic view of life. Yes. That that, that this may look terrible, particularly when we talk to our children. Oh, this is hard. We know you're really disappointed, but things are going to, you know, and we end uh, our services with the Elena in the very end of it that basically says, Ultimately, one day everything. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. So we're a people that has suffered unbelievably, 400 years of slavery, yeah. 2,000 years of anti-Semitism. How in the world? God, God, yeah, yes, right, exactly. Right, can can we say thanks, God? This is all so wonderful. Isn't that amazing? I, I think so. It is amazing. Well, Here's counterintuitive. Hang on. If you're going to talk, I'm going to give you this mic. Go over to the microphone. You're going to talk. Jill wants to say something. When we were in Israel, I got a ring engraved with the saying, Gamlo Latova. This, this too is, is for the good. good to Latova. remind me of all that, Bert. Yeah. So here's the thing. Great question, Bert. How in the world are Jews, do Jews ever think positively about anything? Given our history, right? It's some like don't, by the way. Huh? It's not like all Jews. Some well, don't, some don't. But as a people, as a lesson, as the what? Who? Look, Passover's coming up, and this is a perfect Passover question from Bert because one of the things that we point out, we rabbis, all the time to people is, isn't it amazing that most people? want to trace their ancestry to royalty, right? Everybody goes, when they have past life experiences, I had a past life memory, and I was the king of Egypt, you know? I was in the royal court. I was Nefertiti, I don't know, whatever, right? Nobody says, yeah, I, you know, I had a past life memory, and I was a slave, and whatever. They don't like, people like, don't like to do that. People like to trace ourselves to, back in the day, you know, my great ancestors was the great rabbi of Prague or whatever. And here we have Passover drummed into our heads, literally at every service, frankly. We sing Michamocha, we sing every service. We remember we were slaves every time. More than any other, you've heard this a million times, more than any other mitzvah in the Torah, we are commanded to remember we were strangers, we were slaves, we know the heart of the stranger, we know what it's like to be a slave. We start with our slavery on Passover. In fact, the Haggadah says, Matchil Bignut Umisayem Beshevach. We begin with degradation and then we end up with glory. We begin with degradation. We were slaves. Our father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt, and he got bigger, and we got slaved, and the Pharaoh came along, and we tell that whole story all over again, and how foolish we were that we, you know, the Pharaoh said, let's see how good you can do today. And then we did really well. The Pharaoh said, okay, now you have to do that every day. It's like, what were we? Schmuck. We did that. You should have said, I don't know. I can't, I can't walk today. I'm having a hard time. Well, you know, we should have done that instead, but no. So whatever. So 
you know, we, it's amazing. It's magical. It's powerful. And the reason is, this is just one rabbi talking. This rabbi's version of why we do that is exactly because we've spent thousands of years of oppression. Because in the midst of our oppression, when we tell this story, we were slaves for hundreds of years, and yet, biyad chazaka, ubazroa netuya, with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, we ended up being freed. The story of our exodus is so powerful because it's a story of faith, after all, the night of the tenth plague, after the night of darkness, which was terrifying enough, the night of the tenth plague, everybody knows the story. If we put the blood of the lamb on our doorpost, the angel of death would pass over. If we didn't, someone was going to die in our household. It took the faith of our ancestors to put the blood on the door. In the expression of that faith, they took the first step to freedom. Then after the night of that horrible night, of all those people dying, except for those who put the blood on the door, and Pharaoh said, okay, you can go. Then they had the faith to follow Moses out into the unknown. Then we had the faith to keep going. We got to the sea, and we tell that story. The sea is supposed to part, doesn't part. Nachshon has enough faith, steps into the water. The sea didn't part until someone had enough faith to actually step into the water. Nobody, I would say this a million times, you know, it wasn't like Star Trek where you go beam me up, Scotty, and everybody got beamed up to Jerusalem. No, they went one step at a time, one foot after the next. Ultimately, they didn't have any idea where they were going. They kept following through thick and thin, through mistakes and successes, ultimately 40 years worth of wandering in the desert till they got to the land of milk and honey, the promised land. And then starts all over again. And then they start all over again, and then they mess up all over again, and then they have to fight. And then, But when we tell this story, it's a story of faith, and it's a story of redemption. It's God of redemption. In, in what makes the reason we have this, this positive thinking, is because we, we created an image of God that was an image of God the Redeemer. God who ultimately, if we have enough faith and we do the right thing, we will experience redemption. So even in our darkest moments, that's our that's the Jewish narrative. We were slaves and we went free. That's the Jewish narrative. We were slaves and somehow we ended up wandering in the desert and achieving and reaching the land of milk and honey. Even though what we do every year is just tell the same story and read the same. We never get there. Because when we do Torah study, we get to the end of Deuteronomy. We start in with Genesis again. We literally don't read about Joshua. We don't read about being in the promised land. It's the journey. And that's where the positiveness comes from. And that's where the faith comes from. It's knowing that we have the ability to take the journey. And faith that in the journey itself, all the good things happen. In the journey itself, we get mana. You know, what's the mana principle that I love to talk about all the time? The mana principle I'm going to write a book called The Mana Principle. The Mana Principle is you get food every day, but you can only gather enough for one day. If you gather more than one day, it spoils, goes bad, goes rotten. So that's the ultimate test of faith. In the desert, in the wilderness, they could only gather enough for one day. They had to have faith that 
when I wake up tomorrow, there'll be more mana showing up. That's the ultimate faith. That next day, mana again. Thank God. Oh, thank you, God. Literally, because there's more mana again. And that's why in our Jewish traditional morning prayers, one of the traditional morning prayers is we thank God for providing us with all of our needs because of that story. And because we believe that, in fact, all of our needs are met in the world. All we have to do is do the right thing, and all of our needs will be met. Act in the right way. We'll have food. We'll have shelter if we do the right thing. You know, that's ultimately what the rabbis of the Talmud said. There's a famous section of the Talmud that says, how many mitzvot are we required? And it starts like this. Moses gave us 613 commandments, say the rabbis. But then King David came along and in Psalm 15 reduced it to 11 commandments. In Psalm 15 it says, who shall dwell in the house of God? Here's the 11 commandments. Maybe. One who walks upright, one who does righteousness, who speaks the truth, who doesn't backbite or do evil to one's neighbors or join with those who gossip, spread lies about others, condemns those who are vile, honors those who do what's right, honest in one's about one's own shortcomings, doesn't oppress others financially or speak falsely against the innocent. And then the prophet Isaiah comes along and reduces our mitzvah number to six. Here's the six things that we need to do. What does God require of you? No, what does God require of you? Asked Isaiah. One who walks righteously, speaks uprightly, despises oppression and refuses bribes, who won't listen to slander and who won't countenance the evil of others. Then Micah comes along, the famous Micah 6.8, and says there are three things. Reduces everything, all those 613 mitzvot, to three. What does God require of you? To do justly, to love compassion, to walk humbly with your God. Right? Famous phrase. Three things. I play drums, as you probably know by now, at Temple Isaiah once a month for their jazz service. At Temple Isaiah, on their bima, that's the phrase that's over their their arc to do justly from this quote from Micah. They quote Micah. Okay? Then Isaiah comes back and says, wait a minute, I can reduce it all to two. Keep wise counsel and do justice. Notice justice is a common theme in this. And then... Prophet Amos finally comes along and says, no, there's only one thing, because God says, seek me and you will live. And you can interpret what seek me means, not the Sikhs with the turbans, but seek as in engage in a lifelong wrestling with what makes life meaningful. What does God want me to do? If God were here talking to me, what would God be saying? What would she say to me if God were here? She would say... So they're less in number. I'm not sure they're any easier. No. <laughs> they get harder. No, they're less in They get harder, actually. They get harder. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's Hillel, the famous... Yeah, then, you know... Love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, the rabbis have this whole conversation about what's the most important mitzvah, and they argue one of, one of them quotes... Uh, Love, love your neighbors yourself, Leviticus 19.18, which was Rabbi Cheryl Lewert's license plate. May she rest in peace. Her license plate said LEV 1918, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbors yourself. Yeah, you know, that's the magic of Jewish wisdom. The magic of Jewish wisdom is, where does this faith come from, this positive? I mean, Bert asked, you asked, how can we be so optimistic? We're optimistic because 
We look back at our thousands because we're still here. That's why. Because we look back at our thousands of years of history and we go, hmm, every people that came up to try to destroy us, where are they? We're still here. Where are they? We're still here. Where are they? We're still here. And the we're still here doesn't depend on how many of us there are. That's the thing. We've always been a little minority. We've always been small. It's, of course, we have a very loud voices, so people think there's lots of us. The last survey I saw of in America asking uh, non-Jews in, in America how many Jews they thought were here was that they thought that we were one-third of the country. <laughs> so let's see, we got 300 million or something like that? So we're like, That's interesting. If your Christian friends, yeah. I've done this, you say, by the way, how many Jews do you think there are in the world? Right. And I've asked a number of Christians this question, and, and secular people. I say, I don't know, 100, 150 million? Right. And then I say, like, 16 maybe? Of course, it depends right. on, who depends on who's counting, Jew, but yeah. That's, that's a whole other issue. 15 or 16 million, yeah. Somewhere around there. Yep. Exactly. I mean, there's none of us. There's, and that's why we pat ourselves on the back and go, but we have 20% of Nobel Prize winners are Jewish and things like that because it's something to be proud of. So, you know, And part of that is all these th- texts that I've been sharing and this vision of what it means to be the right kind of person. You know, And ultimately, studying of Torah, why should you do these things? Why should you study Torah? Why should you be engaged in community? Because it makes you the right kind of person. Because being alone by yourself and not engaged in community is the wrong thing to do. It only leads down a dark path. Before I conclude, everybody loved that. That was one of my one-liners in some sermon a few years ago. What was the Jewish definition of an optimist? Speaking of optimists, and the answer was, it was the woman who puts her shoes on when the rabbi says, and in conclusion. <laughs> Nothing better than that one-liner. Okay, so here's I'm, I'm going to end with something that Rabbi Lewert, Leah Shalom, and I put together once of just a couple of quotes of about women from the Talmud. In uh, Tractate Nida, it says, God has endowed women with a special sense of wisdom which man lacks. I like that one. And in Tractate Soda, it says, every man receives the wife he deserves. <laughs> he didn't talk about being gay or lesbian very much, but every person deserves the wife he deserves, or she, I guess. Um, <clears throat> and in Tractate Baba Metzia, the rabbi said, if your wife is of low stature physically, Bend down to consult her. <laughs> and also in Baba Metzia, the rabbi said, whatever blessings dwells in the house comes from the merit of the wife. <laughs> and in Brachot, the tractate about blessings, you can think about this one. One rabbi said, when a man marries a second wife after his first wife's death, he then remembers how good his first wife was. <laughs> yes. And in Sota, finally, it says, He who awaits his wife's death in order to inherit her possessions will be buried by her. 
in any event, um, look, I love reading what the rabbis say in the Talmud. Um, we, in Jewish tradition, before every service, what uh, people used to do was come in early, and in the front of every prayer book was Pirkei Avot, was the tractate of Avot, which is all those pithy sayings that uh, we know so well. One of my favorites from Yoshua uh, ben Parachia, who said, um, get yourself a, a, a teacher and acquire a friend and judge all people charitably. You know, statements like that, that were words to live by. And the words to live by in the Talmud, in Avod and other places that we share and the stories that we share are all written there because they're easier to remember than here's just a list of laws that you should do. And you remember a story, and uh, whether it's about Abraham, they would tell stories about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Leah and all those people, and and great rabbis, great rabbi stories of other rabbis in the Talmud, uh, uh, because it makes the meaning and the ethics and the values easier to live by. So uh, thank you for coming tonight. I'm going to leave you all, and um, we'll find another time for a, a fourth time. And I am um, I haven't decided what I'm teaching next year. So, although I was thinking maybe teaching about death and dying, now that my mother and father are both death and dying. But if there's something that people would like me to teach about yourself, please uh, let me know, and I will uh, consider it as we put together whatever the next series is. But I have one more uh, of these I'm going to do. Rebecca, nice to see you. And um, thank you all for joining. It's been a pleasure. See you next time.